I'm flicking through the pages of a book. It's filled with extraordinary, evocative images. Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, The Velvet Underground, Nico, Andy Warhol, and also famous and infamous figures from the counterculture, from the beat generation, from the summer of love. Michael McClure, Wavy Gravy, the leader of the Hog Farm Collective, Michael Lang, the man behind the Woodstock Festival, the Duke Savages, Owsley, the man who brought acid to the Hay Ashbury, Peter Coyote, Dennis Hopper. There are also photographs of less famous people and all sorts of wild and weird and wonderful incidents deep in the summer of love in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, at the Monterey Pop Festival, the anti-Vietnam War protests. There are images of the Mexican shaman Marina Sabina. There are images of life on communes in New Mexico. It's all the work of one woman, the filmmaker and photographer Lisa Law. This is the second in a series of conversations that I had with Lisa over Christmas 2022. We sat down together, talked about counterculture and her life and times in it. You can check out that episode in the archive. In it, we heard how Lisa, growing up in Los Angeles, very quickly took up the camera and recorded all the events surrounding her in those crazy, crazy times. We followed her through Los Angeles, meeting Dylan, meeting the Velvet Underground, and meeting her husband-to-be, Tom Law. We left them at the door of Summer of Love. And in this episode, we take up the story as they arrive in San Francisco and plunge straight into the crazy wild scenes on the Haight-Ashbury. We follow her and Tom through the years afterwards. We hear about the problems of free love, We hear about communal life in New Mexico, and we hear about a life dedicated to film and photography, and to living the countercultural life. I'm Stephen Coates. This is Lisa Law. I wanted to just read something to you, which you said. Counterculture was an attempt to rebel against the values our parents had pushed upon us. We were trying to get back to touching and relating and living. Well, that has to do with hundreds of years ago when people would hunt their own food and grow their own vegetables and make their own remedies out of herbs and leaves and stuff like that. So we wanted to get back to nature. And and the book that I used all the time to heal my children was Jethro Kloss's Back to Eden. So he had simple ways of, of curing. Instead of going on getting pills at a pharmacy, you had an enema. Right. So, <laughs> okay. So my kids had enemas their whole life. And I said, well, so later in, in life, I said, so um, how did you guys feel about the enemas? <laughs> and then, well, we didn't like them because my daughter was giving me an enema when I asked that. That was last year. And uh, I said, you didn't like them, but they worked. <laughs> yes, they did work. So, <laughs> all right. Listen, we've already got gone in deep. We're talking about enemas already. We've only just started. <laughs> <laughs> back to nature, Lisa. Let's go back to San Francisco to when you guys moved to San Francisco, and what did it feel like when you got there, right into the middle of that stuff? Just describe what you were seeing and what you were feeling. 
hundreds of people on the streets and they were playing guitar and they were dancing. The diggers were feeding people and the Hare Krishnas were chanting Hare Krishna. And uh, there was a psychedelic shop. And I mean, everybody was, you could, you could tell by the clothes they wore and the beads they wore that they were your brothers and sisters by what they're dressing and how they're acting. And so you became friends with everybody. We are, oh, we were members of the same tribe. Okay. So all of a sudden now you're, you're a member of a tribe of people mm-hmm. that are all hanging out in the Haight-Ashbury. And, and they were playing music and they were writing poems and they were dancing in the streets and they were on the, out on the park dressing up in different outfits. And it was like theater. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's where all the groups were staying too. The Grateful Dead were living there, Janice Joplin, but Janice lived over in uh, Forest Knolls. Yeah, she lived in Lagunitas, right close to where I was. And that's when I photographed her. What was she like? The first time I heard her is when I went up to photograph that the picture of them in front of the flag, his big brother and the holding company. I could hear her singing, just belting out a song up in the top floor of this building, this wooden house. Uh, surrounded by trees, I said, oh, my God, this woman could really sing. Basically, I hadn't heard her yet because I didn't go to any shows at the Fillmore that she was at, but uh, she was hanging out at the Haight-Ashbury. So I hadn't really heard her yet, and then I really heard her. And I shot those pictures, and one of them was used as the poster at The Matrix, and that's how I got to know her. And then I said, I should do more pictures of you. And I, I don't think I did the best pictures of the group. And I took them to Woodacre and they walked around this farm. We got permission to use this farm. And they were in the barn and they were by the trees and by the horses and walking around the field. And I was just shooting. I shot a couple of headshots of her, but I didn't do any portraiture of her, mm-hmm. of her which I really should have done at that point was to do her portrait. Okay. But I did what I did. And those pictures are used all the time anyway. So <laughs> yeah. So it, it it was very, very exciting. Every single moment at the Haight Ashbury was exciting for me. Because for as a photographer and a, a you know a documentarian, this must have been like an absolutely extraordinary thing to witness, right? What were your own feelings about it? Not just as a photographer, but actually, you know, your emotional response to this extraordinary thing happening around you. I just knew that this was something different. And I was out there to capture it, the human being. Mm. I mean, Tell me. uh, Jim Arnder flew, jumped out of an airplane with a parachute to bring Owsley acid to everybody on the field. Okay. So I documented that. And it turns out he was a friend of mine, he used to be in the army and he he used to jump out of airplanes. And so they got him to jump out of airplanes with this acid to give to everybody. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there was poetry down in Ginsburg, the Grateful Dead and Timothy Leary and uh, everybody who was in the Haight-Ashbury was invited. And the musicians, the poets, the, I think there were supposed to be 30,000 people there. And uh, they were all just enjoying listening to the music and uh, listening, seeing Allen Ginsberg 
walk around praying and chanting mantras around the field. Everything was so different for everybody. And, and probably a lot of people were on acid. There you are with your tribe. How exciting is that to be there with the, a, your tribe? And that's when Timothy Leary said, turn on, tune in and drop out. That was the moment. That, that was the moment that he said that. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. I mean drop out of high school, drop out of college, drop out of graduate school, drop out of uh, junior executive, drop out of senior executive. Turn on, tune in, drop out. The importance of that to me is that it was a, a demonstration on the part of the baby boom generation of their numbers, of their strength, of their clout, of their power, which is just straight quantity numbers. There were 76 million Americans born between the years 46 and 64. They were trained by Dr. Spock to be demand fed. They were the first consumer species. They were the first electronic species. The very fact that you were an American and young meant that you uh, deserve the world. So uh, the uh, being and the summer of love and the subsequent events all are part of this profound uh, historic generational change. San Francisco's be-in, the gathering of the tribes, set the style for a whole wave of love-ins, be-ins, freak-out, solstice celebrations across the world. In the summer of love, California led the way. Messengers went out to spread the word, like Chet Helm. I bring you greetings from the tribes of the North. I'd like to say as well that about four weeks ago, I spent some time in New York, and I spent some time in London, and I'm here to tell you it's happening all over. I asked him later, did you really mean that? Because... Because when I interviewed him for my movie, movie in 1989, and this was in 1967, 1989, when I interviewed him for my movie, I said, did you really mean that? He goes, well, I'd, I didn't really mean for everybody to just quit their jobs. And it just meant to turn on and tune into yourself and do great things and create things. And, uh, but when he said the word drop out, that's when everybody went to live in the communes and dropped out. And he's going, oh, my God, I said that. <laughs> very funny, Timothy Leary, very funny. I just had to capture everything because everything was so dynamic and new. I mean, it was totally different than living in Burbank, California. There was nothing like it, right? And there had been nothing like it before. So the human being was quite outstanding and actually tom and tom and i got spiritually married that day by reno clean a friend of mine tom was on acid i wasn't on acid because i just got pregnant with pilar so tom's tripping you decided to not trip because you're pregnant but you're taking photographs right that was just one event after that event was the uh, mount tamapias concert uh, fantasy fair that was put on by a radio station over in Berkeley. Well, we were asked to put our teepee up at that concert for a trip tent, but was on the side of the hill. 
a place where people could go to take acid. If they were on acid and they were needed uh, some calm place, they could go sit at the teepee. That was around the hill from the concert. So I, I went over to the concert a few times, but I didn't listen to music. And, and that was a huge group of people playing. Now the doors were even there, which I hadn't seen before. And uh, I, I missed out on the music because I was hanging out at the teepee. Actually, there were not that many people who needed us. After that was the Monterey Pop. At Monterey Pop, they invited us to put up our teepee too. And that was wonderful because we were right in the, in the middle of the walkway where people walk to the concert and buy things and posters and jewelry and food and and we are right there. So you and Tom, um, you had, as well as your other stuff, basically you were offering this kind of service at these places to take care of people who were being a bit overwhelmed by what's happening with acid and stuff, right? One of those people was Dennis Hopper. So Michael McClure had given Dennis Hopper some acid. And he said it was way too much acid he got. And he made his way from backstage to the teepee. And he was in there for about four hours. That's what he told me. And I said, at that point, I'd only met Dennis Hopper once. So I didn't even know who he was, you know, but he was sitting there next to me. I felt a breeze come in through the flap of the door and it went around the teepee and back out. And I was telling him that story one day. He goes, oh, yeah, that was great. It was like there was some other being that was joining us in the teepee. And I looked at him and I said, what, you were there? And he says, yeah, that was me sitting next to you. So I remember that was a special moment. What was your means of calming people or taking care of people who were like overwhelmed by what was happening? It's a calming place. It's like a womb inside the teepee is like a womb. So you get in there and we were actually had a fire in there. You could see the smoke coming out of the teepee in one of the pictures. And so it was warm. It was peaceful. There weren't a lot of people around. And you had people that understood what you're going through. And, and uh, you just do deep breathing. Maybe you ohm or mm. chant or something. And uh, Tom was really good at that. That's what Tom was really good at, was taking care of the, care of the people that were high on acid. And he did that at uh, Woodstock, too. You guys were now spiritually married and Pilar's on the way, right? Were you changing your lifestyle a little bit to accommodate that? Or was that just all part of the unfolding of this crazy thing? Well, we had talked to some friends and they said they had had one of their babies in Santa Fe at the Catholic Maternity Institute for Natural Childbirth. She said it's cheap and it's good. They do prenatal, postnatal, birthing, live in for three days. So we said, we're going to go there. We're going to go to New Mexico. And we drove right from Monterey Pop, hippie bus. It's a Volkswagen camper with the teepee poles on the top. And we drove to New Mexico and we went right to the New Buffalo commune in Taos, where we set up our teepee. We helped cook in the, in the kitchen and they were building their first communal house. I would photograph them peeling the vegas, making the adobe bricks, cooking in the kitchen. We stayed there and helped them for a week or so, went up our teepee. Then we went into Santa Fe 
And a friend of ours let us put our teepee up in on Cerro Gordo. Uh, it's a dirt road in Santa Fe. It runs parallel to Canyon Road up to the mountains. And we set up our teepee. And that's where I went into labor. I'd already hooked up with the Catholic Maternity Institute, signed up for them. And when I went into labor, I went down in the, in the bus to the Catholic Maternity Institute to have Pilar. They basically said, you haven't dropped yet. You have to go home. And I said, I don't think so. I said, my water broke in the teepee while I was cooking. And I, I know I've read that when your water breaks, that's when the baby comes out. And then I had these contractions. So to me, I'm, I'm going to have this baby. And they said, no, you haven't dropped yet. Here's a Placidil. Go home. I said, Placidil? So that's supposed to relax you. So I said, okay, I'll take the Placidil, but I'm going into the bus and I'm going to sleep there. So I slept there for a couple hours with Tom, and then I woke up in full labor. Mm -hmm. Went back in and I said, okay, now I'm in labor. And they said, now you're in labor. You have dropped. Uh, what do they know? Anyway, so funny, just before the birth, I said, you better go on because he's supposed to be part of this. And they went out and got him. And then I gave birth to Pilar. And I stayed there three days. Then I went back to the teepee. And there I was with Pilar, no baby in the teepee. And then we, we had, at that point, we had found this bus on the way to New Buffalo. It was a mobile home made from a 46 Chevy flatbed and then a house built on top. And we bought it for $150 on the side of the road. Well, we had fixed it up while I was pregnant. And so we got in the bus, put the teepee poles on the top, and then we started traveling around in the bus. Now we had a home in the bus with the baby. Pila was born in the summer of love, right? Yeah, yeah, because we had left after Monterey Pop, mm. which was 67. Did you go back there to San Francisco? No, no, we were on the road. 68, we went back to L.A. to work on a house. Lee French and Steve Samuels came to the house one day. Lee French said, you guys have got to go to this yoga class. There's this guy, Yogi Bhajan, who's teaching yoga, and it's fantastic. You should go. So everybody, after work that day, got in the car, went down to the East-West Cultural Center, where we did a yoga class with Yogi Bhaja, who had just come in from Canada. He was sponsored by Johnny Rivers and Jules Pacheri to come into the United States and teach yoga. So he was teaching at the East-West Cultural Center, and we went and to study kundalini yoga with him that day. And, and Tom, of course, got right into it with uh, Yogi Bhajan and was talking to him what about, about what he's doing. And Yogi Bhajan ba basically said, if you do the breath of fire, you don't have to smoke dope. You can get, get just as high. Tom and his group that were there fixing the house, the Juke Savages, wrote that song, uh, You Can Get Higher on the Breath of Fire. The song that Tom... And the Juke Savages wrote, Spajan was a yogi, came here from New Delhi, but he didn't smoke no grass. Said you could get higher on the breath of fire. Get up, get up, get up and chat until the dawn. Keep up, keep up, keep up and pull your old mood bond. 
Take your cold showers in ambrosial air. Squeeze your monkey glands out till your veins all stand out. Touch your third eye with your tongue. So that was one of the songs they had written for Yogi Bhajan. <laughs> Did they stop smoking dope? Well, I wasn't a big dope smoker myself. But Tom did. They quit smoking dope at that point. They moved Yogi Bhajan to Jules Bucheri's furniture store on Melrose and Robertson and started the first ashram for Yogi Bhajan. Then we left in the 68. Oh, we were in a movie. That's what happened right afterwards. We were in a movie called Skidoo. It was a movie about this gangster who has to get into prison to get out one of his guys and he can't get back out of prison to get his guy out. And so they, they ship some, a letter into the prison that's soaked in LSD, mailed it in and they broke it up, put it in the food and got everybody loaded on acid in the prison and made a hot air balloon. And Jackie Gleason was flown out. Okay. But then they went to a boat and all these hippies were, going towards the boat in these smaller boats. And then all those hippies were the hog farm. And so uh-huh. my job was to make the beads for all the people in the movie. And they used our bus. They used our teepee. It's called Skidoo. So if you look it up, you're going to see all the hog farm. Anyway, they made enough money to fix up their buses. And we escorted them back to New Mexico, where they bought some land in Llano and started living there on a mesa. And in 69, we had our second summer solstice. And that summer solstice is when Ken Kesey came with his bus, Wavy Gravy there was there was his bus. He was still Hugh, Hugh Romney. And they brought in uh, beer that had been tainted with uh, acid. And so everybody was on acid. Yogi Bhajan's out there teaching yoga. And all these other people are on acid. Was Yogi Bhaji on acid? No, he wasn't. Were you? <laughs> no, because now I'm pregnant with my second child, Solar. There's absolute craziness going on, but you just keep going, filming and taking photographs, right? At summer solstice, Stan Goldstein shows up, and he's one of the producers of Woodstock. And he's been asked by Michael Lang to... Uh, bring bring some people in who could do security for Woodstock. He says, I know just the group, the hog farm. And there's a lot of them. And they all take acid and they all smoke dope. And they're going to know what the people are doing that are coming to Woodstock and how to work with them and how to put them in the trip tents, all the things you need to do to keep the peace. So he says, I want to ask all of you to come to Woodstock and we'll and wavy gravy at this point. He says, uh, Really? You're going to come get us or something? He says, I'm going to send you an American Airlines jumbo jet to take you on this day. So he, we all get into buses. There's 15 Native Americans from the Indian school in Santa Fe and 85 of us. And we go down to the airport and we get on this jumbo jet. So how exciting is that? Here we are going in a big jumbo jet, being flown to this concert to help people because we know how to take acid, because we know how to deal with people on acid. And we set up our teepees 
on this piece of land to the right of the forest where they had the arts and crafts. So we set up teepees and tents and the free stage. And, and, and that's when we had the conversation, the hog farm and I, they're saying, we're going to have to do some food or something. Uh, let's see, we can go down to the secondhand store and get some pots and some dishes and some stuff and some rice and, and feed these people. And I said, have you looked around here? What's happening here? I said, this is outrageous how many people are here already. There were 25,000 people and most of them wanting to go right to the field and get their places, right? And this is the week before a concert. Have you got any idea what was about to happen? I mean, did you have a sense of like what this was going to be? Well, I did. And I think that was my gift from God in all these circumstances. And that's why I'm shooting like crazy is because it's happening right in front of me. And I've got a camera and I'm shooting, shooting, shooting. So you had this vision of what Woodstock was going to be like, and you could see that like this thing was going to turn into like a completely unprecedented gathering, right? Well, we're setting up our camp and more people are arriving and more groups of people from communes were arriving. And uh, they were helping us. And I looked around and I said, you know, I have a feeling this is a lot bigger than we think it's going to be. And for you guys to be scrounging around at a secondhand store for some pots and pans and getting some rice, that's not going to work. Let me go into the trailer where John Morris is and get some money from these guys. And Peter White Rabbit and I can go shopping in New York. Peter knew all about New York because he had lived there. He was one of the hog farmers. And uh, so I went into uh, the traders behind the stage and I said, um, do you think you could give me uh, $3,000? I think we need to feed these people because I think they're going to starve to death if we don't feed them. He says, oh, okay, uh, here's 3000 So he gives me 3000 We go into town and we go to Greenblatt's and I bought 1,200 pounds of bulgur wheat, 1,200 pounds of rolled oats, currants, dried apricots, almonds, brewer's yeast for vitamin B12, and uh, honey, soy sauce for the bulgur wheat, and sunflower seeds. Then I uh, stayed overnight at a friend's house, the Peter's friend, and I said, now we got to go get some mon more money. So we went into the office of John and Joel, who are the backers of Woodstock. And uh, I said, I need another 3000 They called John Morris and he said, give it to her. <laughs> Just give it to her. And we went out and bought 130,000 paper plates, 130,000 forks and spoons, 60,000 Dixie cups. We bought 250 um, enameled cups, which we gave to people who were working in our area so they didn't keep throwing away Dixie mm -hmm. cups. They could wear it on their side and use it to drink water or whatever and have it as their own. So uh, we got uh, 10 cooking pots and stainless steel salad bowls cleavers, 35 plastic garbage cans, which you use for mixing the muesli 
and we had onion cutters, giant cleavers from Chinatown, and then some gas stoves and propane tanks. And I got a green Buddha to be the Buddha that, that protects the kitchen. Now, there had already been one kitchen set up by the hog farm with all their pots and pans, and they were cooking for everybody when we got there because they came in by bus early with Ken Kesey's bus. The hog farm came in, Ken Kesey's bus came in, and a few more buses came in early, set up the free stage, set up one kitchen, and then we set up. I designed at the kitchen, and the food was five food booths that served 10 lines. And by the time I got back from shopping, they had almost finished building it, which is also in my movie. It shows them hammering the floor, right? And uh, we started cooking. Well, Johanna Ra was in charge and I was in charge. And, but I realized at that point, there was a lot of volunteers, hog farm volunteers and, and, other communes that were there were volunteering. They put on their aprons and they started working. Well, I had gone out in a with a flatbed truck and I to farms in the area. I said, give me that row, that row, that row, that row. And they brought in all these piles of vegetables, which they then chopped up and put into the bulgur wheat. So we had boxes and boxes, crates and crates of vegetables to then mix with the bulgur wheat. And so they started cooking. At that point, I looked around and said, okay, now I can go out with my camera. So I went out with my camera and my Super 8, little Super 8 camera, just a little super stupid little Super 8 camera. And I'm out there shooting. You're pregnant as well, right? Seven months pregnant. And my daughter is running around. Tom's taking care of her. And also the hog farm had a lot of kids there. So they took care of her. And she slept with me at night in the teepee with Tom and I. So I just went out and shot everything I could. And that's when I got up and said on the stage, you guys are hungry now. Just go over there to the hog farm and we can feed you all. And Tom said, oh, my God, you're not going to say that. They all go there once. I said, no, 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 they won't. They'll trickle over there. I know they're just going to trickle over there. And they did. They trickled over. And pretty soon the lines that were 50 long are now 150 long, huge lines. Because by then, the concessions had run out of food. If you guys hadn't done that, right, what would have happened? I mean, people wouldn't have been able to eat right now. Some people brought food. Somebody shared their oranges or somebody shared their watermelon. And, oh, I wasn't hungry because I wasn't acid all the time. But there were those that were hungry. And those are the ones that trickled over there. And they, at one point, Hugh Romney said, what we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400000 That's one of the most important quotes of the era. We drove up a flatbed filled with these trash cans, and now we're serving muesli out of the Dixie Cups. We're serving them as they sit in front of the stage. So actually giving them breakfast in bed for 400000 So that was wonderful. And they thought, oh, look, we're being well taken care of. Everybody was just loving everybody else. You know, there were no mm. fights. Mm. There were no rapes. There was no problem. And if something started up, 
people in the area would say, ah, ah, chill out, chill out. You know, everybody was helping it stay mm -hmm. that way, which was what made Woodstock the Woodstock generation of if, if we can do that with 500, 400,000, 500,000 people, if we can have peace and listen to music and take care of each other, if we can do that, live together like that, we felt that the world could be like that if we all took care of each other and fed each other. That was a great moment in life for all of us and for all the people that came. It changed my life because Everybody was helping everybody else. And I became a vegan because I ate and people were loving. And, it, and look how many people were loving and, and sharing. Uh, oh, my God, it totally changed my life. If that could be like that in the world, that's what we were saying, that the world could be a better place if everybody took care of everybody else. It transformed your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, Woodstock was one of the most important moments in my life. To be able to feed those people, number one, to be able to share, to and then to document it and share. This extraordinary thing that you documented and experienced yourself, and you talk about it because you were able to also share food, and then, of course, your, your record of it, the feeling of potential that we can change the world. Of course, the world did not turn into Woodstock. But do you feel that the spirit of that did flow out? And do you feel that that was a moment which actually did transform society in different ways? Well, if you look at what's happening today, with natural childbirth, feeding natural food, vegans, mm. back to the land, saving the rainforests, getting rid of the chemtrails, all that came out of the 60s. Okay, so the 60s went on and got bigger and bigger and bigger. The whole earth catalog was the first example of people sharing their knowledge, how to build things, how to cook things, how to grow things. That was the Bible. How did the festival end and what did you guys do next, you and Tom? Okay, so Tom was teaching yoga off the stage because he'd been with Yogi Bhajan and he was having people do the breath of fire. And if you look at my footage, you'll see people with their arms out like this doing breathing. And he caught that there and he caught that over at the hog farm area. You know, so he was teaching breathing, yoga, and then Satchitananda came on and did some chanting. And so in between, and then Ravi Shankar played. So in between all the other groups, we had spiritual things happening and Without all these incredibly wonderful bands, it wouldn't have been what it was. And you have Joan Baez, and you have Richie Havens, and you have you know, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was at the end, poor dear. He wanted to be the last group to play, and everybody was so late because it was hard to get in. You had to come in by helicopter. Uh, he had to play to a very small crowd at that point. But he was wonderful. And Santana made its name there at Crossy Stills and Nash. The Who. Uh, Tim Harden was there. Can you imagine? John Baez. Uh, oh, Janis Joplin was there. It was just one group after another after another. And you know what's interesting? Is that I interviewed these people. And I would say, so which groups did you hear? 
Uh, a lot of them. Well, what were their names? Shamana, uh, 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 Sky and the Family Stone. Yeah. They couldn't remember all of them. Because how many years ago was that? Okay. But they all remember is being happy and listening and enjoying being with people who would remember the spirit of it. So maybe it wasn't about the big celebrity or the ego of particular bands. It was about the collective experience in some way. It was getting along Mm. with each other, that that was the most important thing that Mm. happened. Now, some people showed up, saw the rain, checked it out and split. (laughs) Okay. There were those that didn't hang out. And then there were those that stayed right through the rain, plastic cover on themselves, the mud running down. And there wasn't a lot of garbage because back then there was no plastic. There were no plastic bottles. So the only thing they were drinking at the point were cans of like Coca-Cola or something, you know, and there wasn't garbage every place. The outhouses were well kept up not like Woodstock 2 or Woodstock 3. So it wasn't a smelly, stinky mess. And there was a beautiful lake. So people would go down and bathe in the lake and get fresh and then come mm-hmm. back and sit in their seat. After that, we were asked to do the Texas Pop Festival. And we were asked to feed the people backstage and maybe a little bit at the free stage. So at this point, <laughs> here comes the hog again, and they flew me in because I'm now eight months pregnant. Okay, they're afraid for me to get on a bus. And I'm the one who fed everybody out of my hippie bus. <laughs> my husband drove the bus there to Texas. And we fed people. And then I went over to the free staging and gave out a lot of fruit and cantaloupe and stuff like that to them. But this is where Wavy got his name. B.B. King was stepping over him on the main stage. And he says, excuse me, B.B. King said, stepping over some wavy gravy. So Hugh Romney goes, oh, wavy gravy. I like that. And that was it. That's where he got his name from, B.B. King. Wavy gravy. Yeah. All right. So then you give birth, right? You give birth to Solar, right? So Tom took my footage of Woodstock and took it to Berkeley for the Starvin. They were doing a Starvin for Peace at the Berkeley Park. And it went off its reel and went on the ground and got scratched. So if you look closely at my movie, you'll see some scratches. And I'm supposed to have a baby in two weeks. Well, he came back the night I was in labor. And we went right to the farm and started living in the farm. And uh, we had no running water. Everything was a creek. And I would go out and get water and boil it. And we had wood stoves and a wood stove for cooking. I got the fires going, got the water boiling. And I'm ready to have this baby by myself. I had a flat tire in the car. And I didn't go to the neighbor. I said, I can do this. Up drives Tom. And I went outside. I'm uh, delivering the baby right now. And he goes, oh, let me wash my hands. It was good he was there because I had black back labor. I had back labor for Solar. So he massaged me between contractions. And during the contractions, he put hot, wet towels on my back to relax my muscles. Anyway, I gave birth to Solar on the floor of the Adobe house. 
And uh, then Tom fell asleep. Ruffin Cooper had to deliver the placenta. His fame, his claim to fame was delivering my placenta. <laughs> <laughs> and I had two more babies in that house. So I had three children in that room without doctors. Wow. One doctor came to my daughter's birth, but I said, now I'm having her. Uh, you have to just watch. And so he watched and he saw me do it. And he said, I can't believe you can do it by yourself. He says, but you tore when you delivered. I can sew you back up. And I said, okay, you can sew me back up. Anyway, we were living on this farm and growing our own vegetables. And I got a, a, a horse came with the farm, Prince. And we had ducks and chickens, dogs, cats, horses, goats, pigeons. And uh, and I used to go door to door in my Citroen and, and sell food to the neighbors. We were in the mountains of Truchas. This is where the they would send the gangsters who, who got arrested. They would send them to live in Truchas instead of putting them in prison. So we had a bunch of really exciting people to live with in the area. And uh, it, it was wonderful. We had 14 acres. We had a pond. We grew all our vegetables. We grew uh, huge cabbages like this. We had corn um, and we grew our own alfalfa and our own wheat and made our own bread. Was it just you and Tom and the kids or were there other people there too? So the rest of our group, the Duke Savages, came up to Truchas as well and they found little places for sale and they bought their little places, but we didn't all live together. But we all helped each other and visited with each other. So the Duke Savages. Reno and then Tommy Masters, he lived there. Various people lived in the area that were our friends. So it was a great little community up there. But uh, the the local sheriff, of course, was trying to bust everybody who was smoking marijuana, which was not so great. We had to go to court at one point to defend ourselves because they come in and raid you and take you away to jail for for seeds and sticks. Mm. Yeah, Jesus. I mean, look how many years it took to legalize marijuana. Anyway, I would work in the roundhouse at the state capitol in Santa Fe towards legalizing hemp and marijuana in the town of New Mexico and Santa Fe. I was very active politically and documented all that. I want to talk about your life since then, Lisa. So you guys you know, you're bringing up the family on the farm. And in a way, that was part of the how the counterculture, some of it moved back to nature, back to the country, right? And as the 60s move into the 70s for you guys, right? What how does what sort of shape does your life take? We're watching the uh, Vietnam War on a uh, little TV, the long extension cord out to the field. Uh, uh, that I remember. We are still demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. We are still trying to stop what was happening there. I was run over by the truth one day. Ever since the accident, I've walked this way. So stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Heard the alarm clock screaming with pain. Couldn't find myself, so I went back to sleep again. So fill my ears with silver. Stick my legs in plaster. Tell me lies about Vietnam. Every time I shut my eyes, all I see is flames. Made a marble phone book.
carved all the names. So coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. I smell something burning, hope it's just my brains. They're only dropping peppermints and daisy chains. So stuff my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. Where were you at the time of the crime? Down by the cenotaph, drinking slime. So chain my tongue with whiskey, stop my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. You put your bombers in. I mean, it was a disaster what we did to those people. We're living there and Tom would get odd jobs. He went to Europe a few times. I became a healer. I was working with a woman who was healing people with herbs, and I was studying with her. In fact, this is my uh, magic wand that I made. It's got a ring mm -hmm. on both sides. This magic wand I've made and had for healing people for years, okay? And so I used to work with people there, giving them herbal remedies and stuff like that, and massages. And, working with their diets and so And then a, a friend of mine started a toy store. And I said, well, let's not only do a toy store with handmade toys from locals, let's turn it into a health food store. And we provided rice and beans and, and yeast and soy sauce and stuff like that, that the local uh, hippies that were living in the area and it's now being permeated with hippies every place, uh, could come up and buy from us in Truchas. And so we had a little store there. And uh, we we built a greenhouse, and I would go down on farmer's market day and sell uh, plants that I grew in my greenhouse. So I was getting, you know, I was working with the locals and selling them food and going to Santa Fe. And Did you travel back to the cities at all? And did you sort of witness some of the anti-Vietnam protests? And did you photograph any of that? Well, in 67, when we were still in San Francisco, was the big mm. march against the war, which I documented. During the march, there's Tom marching with Victor and everybody, and, and I'm shooting, shooting, shooting. And uh, that was a magical time. The, the Vietnam march was mm. fantastic. And we all marched to... Kizar Stadium, where uh, Coretta Scott King gave a speech, which I documented too, and that's my famous mm. picture, Coretta mm. Scott King. The soldiers that came home, somebody spit on them, and they blamed the hippies. And we said, we're not spitting on you. We're trying to get you back. It's wrong that you were there. We, we feel mm. for you. Okay, so then they learned that we really felt for them, that they shouldn't have been there. We weren't demonstrating against them. We were demonstrating against the war. It was just terrible. So for you, as the 70s went on, I mean, you've got, you're bringing up your family in quite an idyllic sort of way, right? This is the counterculture has gone back to nature. So what happens next for you as a family then, Lisa? Tom was having trouble uh, keeping his pants on, so to speak, because all these people would show up. These girls would, and were after him. And so we decided to go to Hawaii to put our family back together. And we went there and Uncle John had bought a 67 acre farm in uh, Opihikau. 
And immediately I started planting vegetables. I made mosquito nets by hand because my God, the mosquitoes were terrible. I made a stack of blue corn tortillas by hand. There was guavas and papayas and mangoes and avocado trees. And ah, it was just amazing. I just was planting everything, loving it. Okay. Well, Tom ran off with a woman who was at the farm. So I said, you know, we came here to, to recuperate our family, to put it back together. And here you are, you're already making love to somebody else. Mm. So I'm going to go back with two of the kids, the babies. And you come back when you finish building your tower for Uncle John, but don't threaten the relationship. And a few months later, he came back, but she came back first. He had sent over this woman and her child to live with me. And I said, this isn't happening. Sure. I said, you've got to understand that I'm your wife and your four kids and you, you can't do this. We broke up because he couldn't stop having these relationships. How was that for you? Horrible. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. I mean, here I have this absolutely gorgeous and smart man who smoked too much dope, running off with all these women. And I tell him, you can't do this. Oh, free love. It doesn't work like that. There are some people that allow that to happen. Mm. I end up going to Waukla de Jimenez with Sally Grossman, Albert Grossman's wife, who's now wanting me to photograph Maria Sabina. I'd already met Maria Sabina, and they want me to do the cover of the Mm. book. I couldn't believe she wants to fly me there to shoot the cover of the book. Left Tom with the kids. I actually had an affair with uh, Alvaro Estrada's brother, Cesario. I was 117 pounds at that point, having had four children, and I was looking pretty good. And that's when I photographed Maria Sabine, and I gave her a massage, and she had a huge tumor. So if you look at the cover, if you look it up, Maria Sabina, La Sabia de los Hongos, you see my picture of Maria Sabina. And then Sally and I flew back. We went to a concert with uh, Bob Dylan. And I got to see him. He's grabbing me and hugging me. And I wanted to, to read you another one of your quotes. It just ties into what happened or my imagination of what happened. Talking about a commune, you, you said, 15 of us lived together, one room per family, in a kitchen in a communal room. I can't say I enjoyed that kind of living. It always seemed that the women ended up doing a lot more chores than the men. The men played music, smoked the herb, chopped wood and repaired vehicles. Now, one of the things which has come up before on this show, talking to women from the counterculture, is that in some ways, in many ways, it was very progressive, right? But in some ways, when it came to relations between the sexes, it was still rather traditional. Was that the case, you think, that, you know... Women, women were doing the cooking, the men were doing the thinking? Well, that's what happened with the hog farm. They, they, the hog farm noticed that the women had to do all those kind of chores and the men drove the bus. Okay. Tom did farming with me. He was doing odd jobs, but building, but he was smoking a lot of dope. And I don't think at that point that dope was really good for you in the, you got loaded and didn't feel like working. He he wasn't doing that much work to make money. In fact, we are on food stamps and welfare. 
for 12 years. And I wanted to get away from that. I moved down on 77 to Santa Fe. My astrologer said, he said, do what you do best. What do you do best? I said, I'm a photographer. He said, then you start your own business. That's when I started my own business, which was in 77. In 78, when I went to California and I was documenting stuff, I was actually living with Sarah Dillon. And she was breaking up with Bob Dillon. Tom came out there with, he got a ride out with his girlfriend. And he says, I want to get back together with you. I said, me too. I mean, he said, we have four kids. Come on. He says, okay, I'll take the car and I'll go back and you come back. So he did, his girlfriend drives him back. And when I get back there, I knock on the door, says, hi, I'm here. And he goes, oh, she wouldn't leave. She, she won't leave me. She said, she can't live without me. And I said, in that case, I will divorce you. Obviously, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I need to be either by myself or with somebody who, who understands that. And so I divorced right. him. I went on to start my own business. And my mother saw that I was struggling. So she put a down payment on a house for $15,000. Okay. So I moved into that house, built my own office, and started my own business and put the kids through school. But also you're witnessing the Dylan splitting up because that was a similar thing. I mean, Sarah was the mother of several of Dylan's kids, right? So you were witnessing that too, right? Well, in 68, when we went to see the opening of Hair in tandem with a bunch of other vehicles, and we were in our bus, we went up to Woodstock to live at Woodstock. And we visited Bob, who had cut his hair, and he was now having babies with Sarah. And he told me at the castle, I'm going to marry Sarah. And so he used that motorcycle accident as an excuse to stay there and have those babies and work with the band and do the big pink. And that was a really a great moment for him to do that. But when he moved to Point Dune in Malibu and, and started that big hacienda with the pool and the jacuzzi and the big houses and one night he had an affair with somebody. He was downstairs in the kitchen and Sarah came down and she sees the girl that he was with the night before. And she goes, the hell is this? And he, she realizes that he's been making love to this other girl. Well, you can't do that with the mother of four. It's, it doesn't work. So she moved out and she moved to another house in Malibu. And when I came out, I stayed in her guest room with my kids as she was breaking up with Bob, as I was breaking up with Tom. And she kind of, she raised her kids and she kind of disappeared. You don't see where Sarah Dillon is anymore. And he wrote that song, Sarah, Sarah, don't ever leave me, don't ever go. He should never have screwed up with Sarah because that was the best thing that ever happened to him. He called me up. He says, why is she acting like that? And I said, what I should have said to him, you need to go back and apologize to her and get her back and never cheat again because she's the mother of your four children and get back with her. Instead, I said, well, she's married to Bob Dylan. You set out on your own. You set up your photography business. You're bringing the kids up. You're putting the kids through school. And of course, really, you know, your life as a photographer just has just carried on. And you've, you know, you've been an activist. You've carried on shooting, been there all the way through. And Lisa, as we're drawing to the end of this, I wanted you to just talk about the film, talk about the book. Tell us, you know, how that came about. And 
Well, I uh, was doing shows around Santa Fe and I did a show up in Taos and uh, I put on the wall, if I could, I would do a book of these photographs. Well, this publisher from England saw it and he says, oh, I just closed down my publishing company, but I'm going to reopen it to publish your book. And I said, okay, so what's it going to take? He says, well, get it together. Start putting all the pictures together and the writing together. So I started doing that. And then finally, I said, after about a year, I said, okay, I got it together. Are you ready? He says, no, I'm not ready. I haven't opened up my publishing company yet. Uh, so uh, I said, okay, well, I'm going to take it around. And I took it to uh, Chronicle Books. And I, they said, you took this picture? You took this picture of Bob Dylan? You took this picture of Janice? You took this picture of the Haight-Ashbury? Huh. Two weeks later, they said, we're publishing it. And they did it. And that sold like crazy. Then they republished it. And I'm on talk shows. I'm on TV. I'm on the radio. But on the fourth edition was published by me and Baron Woman of Square Books. And that's what this last one is. Uh, this group came to me and said, we want to buy the rights to your book and we want to turn it into a movie. What do you see uh, happening? And I said, well, I'm going to help uh, write it. I'll help uh, shoot it. I'll help edit it. And uh, so this friend of mine said, so why don't you just do it, Lisa, instead of having somebody else do it? So I actually, I had control of my own movie. So I started writing it. I worked with friends, put together all the interviews who I was going to interview and flying out there and interviewing them. And I started producing it. And we went to California and I shot seven shots, seven different people with Viola Spolin, with Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, with uh, Paul Krasner. Ram Dass was in New Mexico. And then we went out to San Francisco and did Wavy Gravy and Johanna Ra edited it. And in 1995, we released Flashing in the 60s, a tribal document. And Graham Nash said, this is the best movie ever made. This God, Peter Fonda, all these people were in it. So good. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing film. I'm going to put a link to the film and to the book in the show notes. We're coming to the end of our time. And I just got a few more questions I wanted to just throw at you, like darts. When was the last time you took acid? Well, I stopped taking acid when I started taking ayahuasca. I've taken uh, mushrooms, peyote, acid, and ayahuasca. And the last time I took ayahuasca was a few years ago. My son runs Unidad de Vegetal in Santa Fe, which is the ayahuasca group there. And I took it 15 times in Brazil and in Santa Fe. Right. So the last time I did that was probably three, three, three years, years ago. ago. I actually have some with me. I have some ecstasy and acid with me here. And I'm waiting for that moment where I could go up river and take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. More questions. Well, I know Tom died this year, but did you guys, um, did you guys remain friends? So he was in New York and he got remarried and had another child and, and we communicated, but we never were able to, to make mm. up. Okay, and I took every course there was, uh, the, the forum landmark education. I took all these courses in order to like myself, because I had my whole life was based on my husband, and my relationship, and my children, and my husband. And that's how I thought. And for me to be able to say, "This is Lisa Law here," 
she did this, she can do this. I raised my kids. I built a house in Embudo from scratch. I, I designed it. Uh, I was going to live there the rest of my life. But I was able to build my own houses and come back to, to Mexico and build houses here. So I've built hotel rooms, houses, helped people. And now I just built a museum. In uh, We're celebrating the fourth anniversary of the Museum of Yalapa. March 8th on my birthday. Okay, so I help with the museum here. That's what I'm doing is adding a new room to the museum here. That's what I do here. And then uh, I, I already started my own museum, Museum of the 60s in Santa Fe. It's already been in three different locations. And I work now with the Woodstock Museum, the Bethel Woods Museum. So I'll go from here from doing this museum here, staying warm during the freezing cold winter and to going back to uh, Woodstock. You you are super busy. You're living life to the full still. Just let me ask you one last question, okay? Where is the counterculture now? Is there counterculture now? The counterculture lives on and people are continuously doing things with those goals uh, in mind. All I can do is show you what has happened up to this point. And as long as I can get the word out of how important it was for people to help each other and to take care of each other and trust each other and feed each other, I'm not going to sit there on the beach and have a beer. That's not me. As long as I could keep creating, that makes me feel good. Then I feel healthy. Otherwise, Adios. I'm out of here. I'm almost 80. I turn 80 on March 8th. I really appreciated the time you spent with me talking about the spirit of the 60s, the spirit of the counterculture, the spirit of the beat generation too, because that's really what this show is trying to evoke for me to understand it, but also to be able to share it with people, because I personally think that, you know, we need counterculture more than ever. Lisa, thank you so much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about your life and times. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And I really look forward to hearing this interview in the future. So there we have it. It felt to me like a gift to spend that time with Lisa, hearing her stories and feeling her spirit, feeling the spirit of the counterculture. I urge you to check out her book and her film, Flashing on the Sixties. We'll put links to them in the show notes, and I'm sure that you will enjoy them as much as I've done. Thanks for listening. We will see you and hear you next time for more tales from the other side, from the underground. I thought we could finish with the voice of Timothy Leary. See you. That I read into this album is surprisingly enough a familiar one. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. I don't apologize for being kind of goofy because at the same time we had Johnson uh, running the country, uh, sending 500,000 troops to, um, to Vietnam. We stopped that. And we had Chadger Hoover, uh, total madman, uh, running our secret police. Uh, so uh, we did great, but I don't want to be held responsible over for the day-to-day quotes because literally we were out there in the front lines uh, just making it up as we went along and uh, 
I give us this credit. We were willing to take risks. We were willing to be holy fools. We were willing to make asses of ourselves. But it was. We all love each other, don't we? Am I right? Oh, God.